Well, I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me back to Roman chapter 10. Uh, Roman chapter 10, and we have uh, been in this series through the book of Romans, and uh, we've been in chapter 10, I think the last three, maybe four weeks, and this is going to be the, the final sermon in this chapter, and uh, we won't be in Romans. Uh, after this Sunday, we're not going to be in Romans for a few weeks because we're going to be thinking through the, uh, the Christmas singing and thinking through what it means for the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, to be incarnated in human flesh, and more specifically thinking about that in relation to uh, the prophecies in the Old Testament. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us just to think through Roman chapter 10, um, as we've been really kind of thinking through it for several weeks, but I want to leverage um, an idea or maybe um, a concept that actually comes out of this text and how it's really important for us to think about today, um, and that's the preaching event. And so when I, when I use the word the preaching event, I'm actually talking about this moment that we're in at this time, where um, this, this becomes kind of the central and focal part of our worship service, is uh, when the, the pastor, the preacher, gets up and he opens the book of God to the people of God and he speaks the word of God to them. And I want us to just think about this text as kind of a background for helping us think through this whole concept of what it means for us to um, have preaching and our worship service, um, why it's central, why it's important, and, um, and just think through those things. Now, one of the things that I, I want us to start off as we consider this topic is that this, this idea of preaching, what we're doing or what I'm doing, and really I say it's an event because it's not just me, it's all of us in here together collectively. So I may be the one up here as kind of the focal point, you're listening to me, but the key thing is that you're listening and so that's why it becomes an event that's involved in all of us. It's not just me up here exercising this, this um, idea here, this event, but we're all collectively in this together because you've, you've come here to listen, uh, you know, sing praises to God and also to hear his word preach. And um, the, the idea of preaching has really fallen on hard times, especially in the last 40 years. It's considered to be... Uh, you know, passe, irrelevant, unnecessary. Um, there's, I, there's, you know, concepts of just, just make it shorter and so we can move on and not really be bogged down with all of this. And there's ideas of, of where preaching has been reinvented in various uh, periods of time. And one of the ways that you can see how it's been re- reinvented is if you go to uh, churches and you see basically what they use as their lectern or their, or their pulpit. So um, these, these, you know, all art communicates something, okay? And so there's, uh, there's a symbol behind everything that's done in culture, and especially in the context of church. So I remember when it was very popular to have what were called acrylic uh, lecterns, and they were basically kind of glass-looking and see-through. And the reason for that was is that that was kind of the age of, of you need to preach with transparency. And so you can actually see through the pulpit. So it's, it's about being transparent. Um, and now it's kind of shifted away for more, uh, you know, coffee tables and that kind of stuff. And that's usually to invite people into a conversation. That this, this is not just me teaching or preaching. That we're, we're having a, a conversation that's going on. 
And so over the period of time, there's been ways in which this has morphed and people have, have taken it on and, and thought through it in different ways. And that, that's kind of where all these types come from. Now, now, I will say this, that if you, not necessarily everyone who uses those forms of lecterns actually thinks that way, but that's kind of where their genesis were. That's where they, they kind of begun. Um, and so there's, there's uh, you know, there's a tendency that as we live in the culture that we live in, and especially in a lot of the churches today, where there is a, a downplay on this event as being a really a central aspect of worship. Now, I would contend that um, when preaching goes, so goes the church. And the reason for that is, is because true preaching, um, as it is defined in the Scripture, is based on the Bible. And what, it's, what it speaks to is what is the authority of the church. Or where is it that God is actually speaking to the church? And not speaking through me as much as he's speaking through the Bible. And so my responsibility is to take this, take this book, to take this Bible, and to, um, to communicate it accurately in the best way possible as it relates to what the Word of God actually says. And so when we, when we gather together and when we come to this moment, what we're really doing is we're listening to what it is that God has to say to us. What did he have to say to us? And it's one of the reasons why I actually announced my text, and I encourage you to bring your Bibles so that you can look and see if what I'm saying actually matches up with what God's Word is saying. So that we can, we can think through this uh, together. Because um, I am... Uh, it, it's, it's a rare thing, but sometimes I'm actually wrong. Sometimes. It, it's rare, but it does happen. Um... But so it's, so it's important for us to to listen, um, to look in God's word, and to to take in everything that's being that's transpiring in this moment. And this this has it really doesn't say anything about me. It's just it's the me. It's how God has ordained it. That that preaching has always been the way that God has communicated. And we'll we'll look at that in in. Uh, in various ways as we work through uh, this text again. Now, we, we've gone through this in, in a lot of ways, this, um, this text, but one of the things that, like I said, I want us to think through this as it relates to uh, the preaching event. And what Romans 10 is doing for us, or help, and how it fits in contextually, is that what Paul is, is writing is he considers the nature of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his his life, his death, and his resurrection, and how that through repentance and faith one can be saved, he considers the nature of the gospel and the means by which it is delivered. How is the gospel delivered? And in Romans 10, God makes salvation available through the preaching of the word. The initial concern is to show that God has not rejected Israel for the preaching of the gospel was adequately available to them. And so they can't plead ignorance and say, we, we missed this somewhere. We never knew about this. As Paul's response is, is that you've had, you've had it being preached to you. How did you miss this? This has always been the means by which God has come near to his people and to shown them the reality of who he is. 
And so that's, that's essentially what Romans 10 does and how it unfolds. Now, I want us to think about this, uh, this text as it relates to the preaching event in basically um, two ways. In, in verses 1 through 13, I think it shows us the gracious act of God in the preaching event. The gracious act of God in the preaching event. Or maybe to say it another way, that preaching is a means of God's grace. Preaching is a means of God's grace. Now, for some of you, you may think that preaching is something you have to endure for 30 to 40 minutes. But in all reality, that the way that the Bible describes it is that it's actually a means of grace. That it's through the proclamation of God's word that God by his spirit draws his people to himself, to salvation. It's through the proclamation of God's word that God sustains us and matures us and grounds us in his word. And so without this event, without preaching the word of God, without the proclamation of the word of God, there would be no salvation and there would be no uh, maturing and sustaining and grounding ourselves in the hope and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or just maybe to say it in another word, if I could sum it up all in just one kind of concept, that without preaching, your life would never be changed. It, it just, it'd just be the same. And, and the reason for that is, is because the word of God is living, it's active, it's powerful, and it affects. It affects, it, it works. Something's always going to happen whenever a person is confronted with God's word. It's, it's either going to be negative or positive, positive in a sense of faith or being drawn closer to the Lord through his son Jesus Christ by the spirit of God, or it's going to be negative, where somebody's going to shut their ears to it and not listen to it, and it's going to draw them back away from, from God and what he's trying to say. And so in one reality, and we'll see this here in just a moment, that in the, in the context of preaching, we're being confronted with God himself. And that's, that's quite a tall order for us to, to think about. And so the, the act of preaching, as it really as we see it in this text, is that it is a gracious act of God. Now, one of the things that we see in Romans chapter 10 is that Paul, he's lamenting the fact that Israel as a whole has sought to establish their own righteousness rather than the perfect righteousness of Christ made available through faith in gospel preaching. So if you look with me in verse 3, notice what it says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And so notice the, the key phrase here and the distinction between their righteousness and God's righteousness. They are seeking, in other words, they're doing, they're looking in of them themselves to establish their own righteousness. And the problem with establishing their own righteousness is they have no righteousness. There is no righteousness in and of us. We are not good by our nature. And th- this, is, this is a common knowledge, whether you're a Christian or you're not. Or whether you operate within a Judeo-Christian principle of morality, or whether you even operate in a sense of secularism. Because if you ask somebody who's a secularist who denies the existence of God, do you think you could do better or you could be better? And most people universally go say, yes, I could be more disciplined, I could be more patient, or, or various other things like that. 
So whether you operate in a Judeo-Christian principle or whether you operate in secularism, everybody knows that they could be better or do better. And so what that means is, is that everybody has a sense that's innate within them that knows that I'm not good. And the problem with our culture is, that we're living in today, is that people think that they can find good in and of themselves. Just look in to yourself, or maybe have a different opinion about yourself. But the Bible has a very radically different way of thinking about how you can actually be good, because the first starting point is, is you have to realize that you're not good. You have to come to that realization that there is no good in you at all. And that it's only by God's grace through his son Jesus Christ that he, he makes you good. In fact, I, I'm of the persuasion that, that any good that we find in what we would consider to be unregenerate people or people who are not in relationship with God, that that good is a consequence of the fact that they are created in the image of God but it's compounded on the concept of what is called common grace. That it's, it's grace that God has given, not just you know, specific grace to Christians in regard to salvation, but it's common grace in the sense that it's grace that he's given to all people that they're not as bad as they could be, if that makes any sense to you. So, um, so, the, so Israel here, and this is a, I think this is a, still a problem that we find in today's culture is that we're trying to establish or we're trying to, to seek our own righteousness apart from God. And the reality of it is, is you can seek and establish it all you want. You're not going to find it because we are not righteous. Only God is righteous. We cannot measure up to that standard. And so this is the argument that Paul makes in the book of Romans. And as, and as bad as that sounds, it's not really that bad. And I say that is because that's the, that's the pathway to the gospel. It's recognizing that you have no righteousness and throwing yourself to Jesus Christ and repentance and faith and receiving his righteousness. So you can spend all of your life that you want to trying to seek and trying to establish your own righteousness, but you will stand before God one of these days with no righteousness. But if you throw yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, then you receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus himself, who was perfect in every single way. He, Jesus didn't need to go to some sort of self-help coach to make himself better. In fact, his incarnation by the virgin birth established him as sinless. And that sinless state stayed until he ascended into heavens and he is still the righteous one, the holy one of God. Because not only because of the virgin birth and the miraculous way in which it happened, but also because he himself is God. He's truly God and he's, he's truly man. And so Israel was trying to seek and doing the commandments. You can see that in verse 5. And one cannot live by the commandments because no one can keep the law. That's an argument that Paul made in Romans 2, 1, uh, 2, ch- chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20. And the righteousness of Christ, on the other hand, is based on the gospel. It is not about doing, but it's about hearing and believing. So look with me in verse 6. 
where it says, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And so in verses 6 through 8, Paul uses the words of Moses from Deuteronomy 30 with a gospel focus. The gospel does not demand doing, working to access it. Israel does not need to reach up to heaven or down to the abyss to take hold of Christ because he has descended down to earth and he's been raised from the dead. That is to say that Christ has achieved salvation and this salvation is presented as completed act through the preaching of the word. That's what we see in verse 8. The word is near you. That is the word of faith which we preach. And throughout Romans, salvation through the gospel is at the very heart. In fact, that's what Paul, is really the thesis statement of the whole book of Romans. Romans 1 and verse 16 through 17 that speaks about the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And so when he talks about the gospel, it's implicit when we talk about it, as it relates to salvation, that the gospel is being proclaimed. That somebody is speaking it, and it's falling on people's ears, and as they're hearing, by the Spirit of God, their lives are being changed. It's, the gospel is bringing forth faith, and they're giving themselves totally to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, what Paul is doing is he shows that the spread of the gospel through the preaching event reflects this gracious act of salvation. Preaching is an activity of grace. Salvation does not need to be sought at or achieved because in verse 8, the word is near. It's near through preaching, so you need only hear, hear it, and believe in the gospel as it, as it comes out of uh, chapter 9 and verse... Uh, and, I'm sorry, in uh, chapter 10 and verses 9 through 13. Now, one of the things that's interesting, and I don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but it's really important for us to think about, if you'll notice that this idea, and he says this several times over in chapter 10, about how the word is near. That we don't need to go looking for it. God has brought it near to us. And there is this, there's this sense, and as the word is near, that means that God is near. As the word goes forth, that means that God is near or that he is present. And you've probably heard me say this a number of times as I speak about how, where is Christ present? Christ is present in his word. How do we know that God in Christ is present in our worship service? How do we know this? How do we know that we've had an encounter with the living God when we come into our worship service? Is it emotion? Is it, is it chills? We feel like the hairs on our arms are standing up or the back of our necks are standing up. Is that a sign that God is present? Is it miraculous signs? The telltale sign of whether God is present in our worship is whether his book is open, whether it's read, and whether it's proclaimed. That's how we know that God is present. Because his word has come near to us. So in the word, God, is, God in Christ is present with his people. 
And there is this connection here, too, especially as we think about entering into this Christmas season and thinking about the incarnation, how God became human flesh, how he, how he was, uh, you know, through the virgin birth, there God was from the, the very earliest stage. Think about this. God is an embryo. God is a fetus. Okay, the, the various developments in, the, uh, in Mary as she was pregnant with him. This, this is God. And God is present in that, in that way. And then he, he's born. Um, he's an infant. He's a toddler. He's an adolescent. And then he becomes a man. And when he becomes a man, then he starts his ministry. And so the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is a vehicle to God's proclamation. Now, how does, how does John describe Jesus as the incarnate? He calls him the Word, doesn't he? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God. He talks about how the Word became flesh. And so here, God comes near to us in the context of his son Jesus Christ through the incarnation. And then through that, God comes near to us through his proclamation. Because that, became, that becomes the vehicle of Jesus' ministry. What does he come to do? What's his purpose? He goes from town to town to do one thing, to teach the kingdom, to preach the kingdom. And then after the Lord Jesus ascends into heaven, how do we extend the ministry of Jesus? Proclamation. That's how we bring Jesus near. That's how we bring God near uh, to, to people. So the word is near through the preaching of the gospel. So there's this gracious act of God in the preaching event. I think that we can see... Um, in these verses that I gave you. And then the other thing, that I think this is really important for us, that outside of the preaching event, there is no salvation. There is no salvation for people unless they hear. Now, I want to be really clear about this. It doesn't necessarily mean that the only way somebody can be saved is that they have to come into church on Sunday and they have to hear a preacher. Because in a general sense, that whenever we share the gospel with someone, we are preaching to them. We are proclaiming to them. Okay, so, so there is this extension of this, maybe this proclamation ministry, this preaching ministry, but really the, the focal point for us as a church and as Christians has to do with what takes place as the preacher gets up and he proclaims. Okay, so there's people that have been saved outside of it, maybe it's through their parents and home, maybe it's through a Sunday school teacher, but that all comes through the Word. It's, it's someone telling them about what the Word is saying, telling them about the Gospel, about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for them, and calling them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's always a, a verbal thing. And nowhere in the Bible, nowhere, in the Bible, can you ever find an instance where someone was saved apart from the verbal proclamation of the word? Now, there may be an exception to this on the road to Damascus where, where Paul is confronted with the risen Lord Jesus. And maybe in a sense we could say that Jesus proclaimed himself to him. I would probably argue that it was after his encounter that his conversion actually took place where he had to go into Damascus, and there he met Ananias. And then Ananias baptized him. And so, but nevertheless, that the, 
the preaching event is so closely and uniquely connected to bringing forth salvation in the lives of people. And what Paul has, he does here in this text is he asserts that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that you will be saved, you can see that in verse 9, and then he further states that you must call on the name of the Lord to be saved in verse 13. And of course, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in verse 13, that the call on the name of the Lord is connected to calling on Jesus as Yahweh, as God himself, as he's identified in the Old Testament. And then in verses 14 through 15, the steps are outlined, outlined in order for you to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart or to call the name of the Lord. In this section, Paul starts with salvation and he works his way backwards. So verses 9 and 13 reflect salvation. And then in verses 14 through 15, the steps that brought about this saving act are charted. And the sequence is, uh, from start to finish is, one, number one, somebody must be sent. The preacher must be sent. Number two, the preacher who's sent must preach the good news. Number three, those to whom he is sent to preach must hear. Number four, the gospel heard must be believed. And number five, those who believe call on the name of the Lord for salvation. So in order to be saved, we must believe, but we cannot believe without hearing. We cannot hear without preaching, and there cannot be a preacher unless he is sent. So if you look with me again in verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And then he grounds this in a passage from Isaiah as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And by by the way, beautiful feet is a uh, kind of a a euphemism for his work, his action, because I do not have beautiful feet. Okay, so in case you were wondering, I I doubt that you have beautiful feet. You're probably uh, right about that. But so it it has to do with his action, what what he's doing, mainly that he is he's taking he's moving the gospel you know, wherever he goes, he, wherever he, he walks, where, whatever place he's in, he's, he's proclaiming and he's preaching the gospel. So, now, so in order to be saved, as I mentioned, we must believe, but we cannot believe without hearing, we cannot hear without preaching, and there cannot be a preacher unless he is sent. Now I want you to note important concepts with some overlaps in this section in verses 14 through 21. Number one, preaching produces faith. Preaching produces faith. It elicits faith or belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now note, uh, you know, preaching by its very nature is designed to be heard. And since faith comes by hearing the word of God or the word of Christ, there's a fundamental correspondence between the act of preaching and the creation of faith. Paul is not saying that preaching is the best way among other ways to elicit faith. He is saying that it is the way. It is the God-ordained means of producing faith. Faith in Jesus Christ would not exist without the preaching of the gospel, without it being verbally proclaimed, and without it falling on the ears of people to hear the gospel. So notice in verse 17, it says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, or maybe some of you have in your translation where it says the word of Christ. Now, why is this the reality? Why is it that faith comes by hearing 
in hearing by the word of God. Why is it that faith gives birth for salvation? Because this is in keeping with the character of God. God's revelation of himself begins with him speaking the world into existence out of nothing. There's nothing there. And then all of a sudden, God speaks, and guess what happens? There it is. In fact, one author notes about God's um, revealing himself in Genesis 1 and about the, the successive creation that follows from day 1 to day 6. One author makes this statement. God preaches and the world was made. Six sermons are preached in a wonderful sequence. The word of God is proclaimed in heaven's pulpit and all comes to pass. The preaching of God forms the universe. And so too, when the word of God, when the, when the word of the gospel is preached, it produces faith as the spirit of God who hovered over the face of the waters in creation. Through preaching, the spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Preaching not only produces faith, but it grows, matures, fortifies, and sustains one's faith in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I I want you also to think about it in this way as it relates to the means by which God has ordained this and how it's, in a a lot of ways, is connected with what we see in the book of Genesis. So, there's nothing there. God speaks, and then what happens? It's there. And the preaching event, as it relates to your spiritual life, There's nothing there. You have no spiritual life. You have no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then God speaks through his word. And then what happens? All of a sudden, there it is. All of a sudden, you you hear there's faith that's being enlisted. And then you respond in faith. And all of a sudden, you were nothing. And now you are a child of God. Or maybe to say it another way in the language of Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. There was no life in you. Then there's preaching, and all of a sudden you're alive. It's 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 an incredible thing sometimes to see that in people. They they may come in here, or maybe you're you're proclaiming Christ to them, and you're thinking, there's no way. There's no way that this person is going to come to Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden you share the gospel with them, But maybe it's through this preaching event right here, the gospel is being shared, and all of a sudden their life is completely changed. And so that's that's the way that preaching works. So preaching, it elicits and it produces faith. The other thing, uh, number two, preaching rests upon involves the word of Christ. The reason the preaching event is effective is because of its content. The emphasis is on Christ and his gospel. If you look back in verse 14, call on him. Believe in him and believing in, in the cross event. So the response of faith to preaching is not grounded in the art of rhetoric or persuasion, but in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, his resurrection for salvation. When the word of Christ, when the gospel is faithfully and clearly preached, God by his spirit powerfully acts in regard to salvation. There are several texts that denote the saving power of God and his God's word in the gospel, Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God into salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Hebrews 4, and verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. Second Corinthians 3 and verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Inspiration means it's breathed out by God. So the effectiveness of preaching is faithfully declaring the glory of Christ and His gospel, faithfully heralding Christ crucified, buried and risen for salvation. That's the effectiveness. It's not in the fact that, that somebody's a good storyteller. It's not in the fact that somebody's passionate about what they're preaching. It's not in the fact that they're, they're more relevant than the other person. It's in their content. And that's really the measure of how we measure what really good preaching is. Everybody has a different type of style they like a little bit better than others. But in all reality, if they're preaching the Bible and they're preaching clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that's the only thing that should matter. The third thing that we we learn about this uh, preaching event is that not all respond to preaching. I mean, I would love for everybody to respond positively to it. But the reality is that's just not true. So sadly, for many who have heard the gospel, this does not mean that they will respond in faith or call on the name of the Lord to be saved. So although the hearing of the gospel is necessary, it is not the sufficient condition for salvation. Hearing must be coupled with faith. In fact, in verse 16, Paul says that not all have obeyed the gospel. So in other words, especially in the context of Romans, Israel has heard this. It's come near to them, but it's obvious that not all have obeyed. Now, I, I will say this about the preaching event, is that it, it's not neutral. People don't respond with neutrality. They either respond with acceptance and embracing it in faith for salvation or embrace it in faith for maturity, or they'll reject it. And so it always comes with a response. And so that's, that's kind of, in my opinion, the ground for when we say that the word of God will not return void, we always think that's positive. It's, it's always going to affect something positive for a person, but that's not necessarily true. It may affect something negative for them. If they reject it, then that's the effectiveness of the word. Because it's come to them, and now they are rejecting it. And then the fourth thing that we, we learn in this text as it relates to the, the preaching event is that the preacher must be sent. In a general sense, all believers are to preach the gospel in the act of evangelism. Everybody's sent. Matthew 28 and 16 through 20 is for all Christians. It's not just for preachers. It's not just for missionaries. The call is to go and to make disciples. That's for me that's for you, that's for every single Christian, that we need to be living our life in such a way that we are making disciples, looking for people to talk to, to make disciples. And to make a disciple, some people think that it's, to make a disciple means it's a discipleship process. But making disciples means making followers of Jesus Christ. And the way that somebody becomes a follower of Jesus Christ is through salvation. Right? The discipleship process comes through, the, through that process in the, the latter part of the Great Commission, teaching them all things. Okay? So we're all sent, in a sense, to, to, be, to proclaim and to preach the gospel, and everybody needs to embrace that, that concept. But in Paul's presentation in this chapter, the commissioning sending of preachers 
is an essential prerequisite. In, in other words, it's not just a, a Mavericks-type idea where we just make up our own thing. Hey, I'm going to do this kind of, kind of thing. Somebody, everybody needs to be sent. A preacher needs to be sent, which means that there has to be somebody sending him. Now, obviously, in the background of that, that isn't it God that sends? Yes, it is. But that, that's also confirmed through the church. Because anybody can say, God sent me. In fact, I have had people, <laughs> some of you remember this, somebody tried to come to this church one Sunday and tell me that God sent them, I mean, right when I'm getting ready to preach, God sent them and that they have a word for this, for this church. And I just told him, no, he didn't. Go sit down. And, and the reason that I can say that, in a sense, is because that confirmation has to be verified. It's not just somebody just says, God sent me, and then they just go on solo in and of themselves. It's through the, it's through the ministry of the church that someone is sent. Now, I, the reason that I say that is because if you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16... When he talked about his church, he told his church, I give you the keys of the kingdom. The church has the authority. As they are working in in obedience to God, it is the church that has the authority to do this. And so it is through the commissioning and the sending of preachers by the church that begins this this whole process. As we look back here in verse 15. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? So the church send. They commission those to go out and to preach the gospel. It's really, in, in a lot of sense, you know, I'm talking with a lot of specificity about this preaching event and about a preacher. But in a general sense, this is what we do every Sunday when we end the service in the benediction. Is I'm sending you out. To send you out to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to your one. Or to any person that, that you come in contact with. But Paul is actually reflecting on this process as it relates to the Old Testament. That the prophets have always been sent. Paul speaks about how he himself was sent. He was commissioned by Christ. Which, by the way, even though that Paul was commissioned by Christ, you, you do realize that he was accepted by the church. That when he made his appeal and told them what was going on, there was a lot of them that were afraid, but Barnabas took him in and drew him in. And so it wasn't just Paul just going and saying, hey, I'm doing this on my own. I mean, he went through, it was the Jerusalem church. And then the Jerusalem church sent them to Antioch, and then that's when they planted a church. And then from Antioch, they sent Paul and Barnabas further. And so Paul's own commission came directly from Christ. It was verified by the church. And so it seems natural for, to him to understand that Jesus is the one who sends a commission preachers. And then I think Ephesians 4 and verse 11 helps us understand how this works today. In this verse, we learn that Jesus has given his church not only the foundational preachers of his word, the apostles and the prophets, but also those who continue the apostolic and prophetic ministry, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. And Paul also gives insight into this sending commission, a commission in Acts 20, where the church commissioned the elders and the pastors of the church to continue the apostolic ministry. Titus, by Paul's authority, was to appoint elders in Crete 
to continue the apostolic ministry. Then if we looked in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it's given for us the qualification for pastors and teachers who are sent uh, to preach the gospel and to help send out more people for the sake of the gospel. And so as we, as we think about Romans 10, and especially as it relates to verse, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, I hope what it will do for us is it will help us to, to really embrace and to treasure this time. That as I stand up here, I stand up here to preach and to proclaim what God's word says in the hopes to affect salvation in the life of people and also in the hopes of to progress people in their salvation, to ground them more in their salvation and to mature them in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of my biggest hopes is that when I preach, and sometimes I, I say, sometimes, some of you have heard me say this prayer over and over again, but I, I usually say something like, I pray the prayer of John the Baptist that I may, um, that I may, uh, what is it? Yeah, yeah, I can't remember. I, I, it's been a while since I've said it. But the idea is that attention goes away from me and attention to God and to his word. And, you know, there's in the tradition, uh, especially in the Reformation, they used to have what they were called uh, Geneva gowns. And some, some people still wear them where they wear these black gowns when they preach. And that came from the idea of them trying to black out the preacher. So they, they just put this black gown on, and, and they're, not, they're not caught by what kind of clothes. They're not distracted by all that. They're just they're trying to be distracted, just focus on, on the Word of God. Because it is so essential for the life of the church. It's so essential for our spiritual well-being as we progress. And it's essential for us to think about how we're going to affect culture. And there's all kinds of ways that we see that has been developed in the church that we need to do something different. But this is the means by which God has given us to bring about salvation and changing people's lives is for them to be confronted with the word of God and the word of God alone to change them so that they might be saved by the gospel. Let's pray.